Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Let's Run, the Western Mass Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Gaudet. This podcast is made possible thanks to the resources at East Hampton Media. My guest for this episode is Erica Emerson, a Western Mass marathoner and ultra runner who belongs to not one, but two running clubs, the Greater Springfield Harriers and the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club. Erica recently took on the challenge of running the Leadville 100, a 100-mile trail race through the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. In the podcast, we discuss Erica's impressive ultra running leading up to Leadville, her Leadville experience, and then we transition to Erica's marathons. Erica and her family and friends had a terrible scare during the 2009 Philadelphia Marathon when Erica collapsed during the race due to a heart issue and was in a hypothermic coma for several days. Fortunately, the surgery to correct her congenital heart defect was successful, and Erica made a triumphant return to Philadelphia in 2017 to run the entire marathon. Erica hasn't stopped running since. Here's my conversation with Erica Emerson, and stay tuned afterwards for a rundown of running events. I would now like to welcome Erica Emerson to the Let's Run podcast. Erica is an accomplished marathoner and ultra runner, and just recently returned from Colorado, where she participated in the Leadville 100 trail race through the Rocky Mountains. Erica, it's always great to talk with you. You too, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I haven't actually seen you. I think it's been about a year and a half since I've seen you. I think the last time we were together was at the Snowstorm Classic races at Forest Park in Springfield. Right. It was before the pandemic. It was, I think, like February 2020. So it's been a while. They managed to get all those races in, which was nice. Yeah. And then the pandemic came and it hasn't been the same since. No. Although now, hey, races have come back this summer. So that's been good. Yes, for sure. So you just returned from a great vacation in Colorado and Utah. And we're going to talk about Leadville in a few minutes. But you also did some hiking, and I believe you visited Arches National Park. Yes. So that must have been pretty awesome. Yeah, that was amazing. I love Colorado. You know, I've been out there a couple of times, and my wife Cindy and I, we have a national park trip planned to Utah. We planned this last year, and then we postponed it a couple of times through the, the pandemic. But we are going in October, so we're visiting six national parks. We're doing like oh, the awesome. so-called Grand Circle. Yeah. So we go through Zion, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Arches, Mesa Verde, and then Grand Canyon. Wow. Oh, so that's looking awesome. forward to that. I think your weather will be perfect. It was pretty hot when we were there. So I think you're going at the perfect time. Yeah, I'm hoping for that. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little late, but hopefully not too late where it's too cold at night. Oh, no, no, I think it'll be beautiful. So for the rest of our podcast conversation, I'd like to talk about your ultra running leading up to Leadville and then followed by your Leadville experience. And then afterwards, talk about your marathons, including a real scare at the Philadelphia Marathon that you thankfully survived. Yes, that's an incredible story. But first, let's get back to when you started running. So based on your member profile in the Sugarloaf Sun, you started running around 20 years ago. And then you quickly progressed to running marathons. I believe you ran your first marathon in 2004. Yes. So when did you decide that maybe marathons weren't enough of a challenge for you and that you decided you wanted to run ultras? Um, Definitely was a long progress or progression to start running ultras. The real key here is my dad is an ultra runner and he has run hundred mile races and was quite successful at them back in the early eighties. Running really always was kind of leading up to doing an ultra. So the marathoning, any kind of running, the bar was set pretty high for me to start looking towards ultras due to my dad's success in them. So your dad, he must've been an ultra pioneer. Yes. (laughs) I started long distance running, you know, maybe I think 2013 and ultras weren't even on my radar until a few years ago. And I know ultras are more popular now than, than they had been, but your dad was running them back in the eighties. Yes. 
And we have a great story. I can remember when I was maybe eight or nine years old, the request of my mom was to sew pockets into his shorts because he would take baked potatoes as fuel for the ultras. So he had my mom sew him pockets, <laughs> take the potatoes for fuel. <laughs> Things were much simpler back then. Pretty heavy to carry, <laughs> lugging around all that extra weight. <laughs> right. He really opened my eyes to ultra running for sure. Well, it's amazing how nutritious potatoes are. I never knew that until I visited Prince Edward Island and there's a potato museum there. <laughs> I do. I think they're perfect fuel. If you add a little salt to them, I think they're good carbohydrate and they're easy on your stomach. And they were definitely on to something. Yeah, for sure. So then looking at your results from Ultra Sign Up, you've run Seth's Fat Ass 50K four times. For folks who don't know, that race, it's 10 5K loops through Forest Park in Springfield. And in fact, one of your Seths, I ran a couple of laps with you. Yes. And I knew back then you were an ultra runner, I guess, but I guess I didn't know how into it you really were at the time. But you also ran the Seven Sisters race yeah. four times, which is a 12-mile trail race along the ridge crest of the Holyoke Range. And that has over 3,500 feet elevation gain. So, so I guess you like ultras and you like trail running. So did it, did it make sense to, for you to combine those two and, and, and run a, an ultra trail race? It's funny. So the Seth's thing happened. One of my friends, Mary Gurton, actually had texted and said, and it was a 5K week for the Snowstorm Classics. So it actually thought that it was a typo when she said it's a 50K. <laughs> <laughs> I, I signed up unbeknownst to me that I was signing up for the 50K. <laughs> I said, that's a typo, right, Mary? And she said, no, it's actually a 50k. <laughs> so that's I I love the idea of that race because it is um, loops where you come back to where you start. So there's not a lot of pressure to say that you're going to do the whole thing. It was really a nice low key fun event. And lo and behold, I ran all the loops and I was surprised. So that really set me on that trajectory to start doing longer distances. Yeah, 31 miles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's a factor of 10 between friends, I guess, huh? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, I believe you, your first ultra trail race was in August of 2018 when you were in the Ragged 50K at Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire. Yeah. And that race has 6,300 feet of elevation gain. And so you ran for almost eight and a half hours that day which I believe was much longer than anything you had ever run before. Right. So how did you train for that event? So when I had actually signed up for that for training for the Vermont 50, I signed up for the Vermont 50 and earlier that year in 2018, I had watched my boyfriend and his friend the year before do the biking part of that race. And I fell in love with that race. I'm from Vermont. The scenery there is unbelievably beautiful, and it looked like a really fun course to run. So when they did the biking, I had made a commitment that I was going to sign up for the 50 miler that following year. So I did sign up for that. And then the Ragged Mountain was actually part of the training that I had for the 50 miler. But it, training for any of those distances over that type of terrain is a challenge, but it's also we're very lucky to live where we live because we have a lot of incredible trails and similar terrain to both the Vermont 50 and, say, Ragged Mountain right in our own backyards here. So we're very fortunate. Yeah, it's true. It's pretty awesome. I feel fortunate. Sometimes I tell people we live two hours away from just about everything. Right. I go to world-class skiing in two hours. I can go to New York City. I can go yep. to Boston. <laughs> Everything is two hours. <laughs> you can go to the beach. Yep, exactly. And even in our own backyard, we have a lot of great stuff too. Yes. So how did you feel then after the first Vermont 50? So that was on your radar. You, you ran ragged to train for that. And then you ran to Vermont. That was your goal. How did you feel afterwards? So the race itself was kind of funny because my dad, who is, I would say, one of my biggest fans and along with Chris came to support me for that race. 
And around the mile 30 aid station, I had come in and I was like, oh, dad, my legs are kind of tired. (laughs) (laughs) In all seriousness, with almost a little smirk on his face, and he said, well, this is where things get interesting. (laughs) What does he mean by that? (laughs) I'm like, I have another 20 miles. What does he mean by that? I spent the next 20 miles trying to imagine what it was my dad meant by that comment. Fortunately, nothing ever felt any more tired. I ended up finishing that race feeling pretty good. And the sense of accomplishment after that first Vermont 50 was amazing. I felt really excited. And I'm like, really just so grateful for what my body could do. And again, the things that you see on that course, I mean, you can see the sun is rising. It's these beautiful green mountains through you're running through fields and dirt roads and it's just beautiful. So and you can go at a pace where you can enjoy all that. Yes. <laughs> I mean the little trail running that I've done, I usually have my head down and I'm looking for rocks <laughs> and stumps. <laughs> yeah. Well, you fall, you definitely fall some, but I think as most ultra people will tell you, there's a lot of hiking involved in the ultras. You really want to hike the uphills and where you can make up speed by things that are somewhat flat or downhill. That's where you really try and get your running in. So you mentioned hiking. So that brings up a question. Do you ever use hiking poles when you run? I've never used them. I had planned to use them in Leadville for going up over Hope Pass. I use them for hiking, interestingly. They do really alleviate a lot of the stress that happens on your legs and your knees, particularly for the downhill. So they are very helpful. And the intention was to use them for level. I've never actually used them for any of my other events at this point. You know, I did quite a bit of hiking when I was younger and never used poles. And then when, right. and then poles became popular and I would look at people with poles, nah, I don't need that. And Well, 10 years ago, I bought a set of holes. I want to go out without them now. (laughs) No, I know. And I definitely think it's almost an age factor. I'd be like, I'll never use those poles. And now I can't really do a long hike without them. No, I agree. So you ran Vermont 50. You had success. So what made you want to do it again? So I wanted to try and do it a little bit faster. And I remember after the first time I did it, the terrain of probably the last 15 miles of it is a lot of mountain bike trails, obviously, because it's also a mountain bike race, but a lot of switchbacks that go back and forth. And I remember feeling my hips were really not used to that. I was used to doing just uphill running, not necessarily going back and forth. And so the plan was to just train a little bit differently, train on some of those trails that do that type of traversing and switchbacking to get used to it, to be able to get a little bit more speed and, you know, success on those trails. So so you had to find trails to train that had switchbacks. Yes. And there are some over on the other side of the Seven Sisters, they're called Earl's Trails. They're actually mountain bike and they're maintained by the mountain bikers and they do an incredible job. They're beautiful trails, but they do exactly what you need to get in to, I think, be successful at that race in terms of all the the different muscles you use. A lot of switchbacking, back and forth, traversing down, and then also when you're going up the mountain. Do the switchbacks present more of a challenge going up or going down? I think going down because I think a lot more pressure is on your hips and your knees. And it just definitely were muscles that were not used to being used when you do even like your sort of road running where you're running in a straight line and just going forward. So it's a definitely a different kind of running. And in New England, our trails generally, as you know, when you hike, go straight up the mountain. There's not a lot of backing. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's harder to find that type of terrain to run on. So then in your second Vermont 50, you wanted to improve upon your time and what you did, yes. but along the way, you took a little detour, right? Yep. Ran off course for a little bit. <laughs> so I was feeling really good at that point of the race and it happened so quickly. I was running and I saw some cyclists ahead of me and a couple other runners and all of a sudden they weren't there. And the only thing I can think of is I went down to get some fuel open a goo or do something. 
and miss the trail where it turned left. So I think this is every trail runner's nightmare. You're running and you're like, I just want to see a marker, but you keep going thinking that you're going to see a marker. <laughs> right. You don't know what actually abandon the course that you're on and turn around and go. And finally, I was like, there's no way it would go this far without a marker. And I didn't remember that portion of the course from the previous year. So I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to turn around and go back. And I was still feeling good at that point. But I think I just felt it was a silly mistake because the courses are well marked and that really shouldn't happen. Are there special markings for the races over and above what the hiking trailblazers are? Oh, yeah. They have ticker tape on the trees or when there's a turn, it's marked quite well. And actually, when I hiked back up and ran back up to where I went off course, the trail marking was pretty clear. It was just that for that moment, I wasn't paying attention and went right by it. And that could happen to anyone. In spite of that, though, you beat your time by 20 minutes, right? Yeah. I encourage people to check out this race. They also have a 50K. So the 50 mile isn't what you want to do, but it really is just beautiful and it supports Vermont Adaptive Ski. So it's a really good cause as well. Great. So then you ran your second Vermont 50. And then when did you decide to sign up for Leadville? It was a decision somewhat after Vermont 50. Um, Chris and I do a lot of hiking out in Colorado. We have probably for the past five years or so. He has a brother that lives out there and I have a very good friend. So we've been out there a lot hiking and it is really beautiful. As you know, it's unlike anything here. And I've never had a problem with the elevation hiking. So I really thought running my first hundred there would be ideal setting and really motivating. And I also, in my mind, I'm kind of like, I want to do 100 miler and sort of be done with it. And I felt like that one would be the one to do. <laughs> Probably because your dad did a hundred miler. Exactly. I feel like it's in my blood and I would love to, especially while he's alive so he can see it. But so there was a draw for that mainly because of the beauty of where it is and it being kind of the the ultimate challenge. Right. We spent some time out a few years ago at Rocky Mountain National Park hiking there, stayed at Guestes Park. It's beautiful yes. there. So Leadville is a unique challenge. It's a 100 mile course and the total elevation gain is 12,000 feet. And plus the race starts in Leadville, which the city itself is at an altitude of over 10,000 feet. It's sometimes called a two mile high city. So we are nervous about running an event where the distance was really twice what you've had ever run before? Yes. And so what happens too is Leadville is a lottery and I applied for the lottery. I think the same year the Vermont 50 was happening. And then you hear in the, I think January of the following year, if you get in and I did not get into the race through the lottery. So there was a way to sign up through coaching. So if you signed up for coaching package, you could get into the race, you'd get a race entry. So I thought, since I'm not getting any younger and don't know how long it will take to get into the lottery, I thought this might be a good way to get into the race and also have the benefit of a coach to help me through this process. And so that was in 2018 to run for signing up for obviously 2020. And everybody knows what happened in 2020, everything got canceled. So I had the coach and his name is Ryan Kroll and he's through Boundless Coaching, which is, they do this service for folks that are signing up for Leadville. So he's an experienced runner and mountain biker as well. But so I used him as a coach for the two years while waiting for Leadville to actually happen. And he did a lot of seminars with his coaching group related to altitude and elevation and diet and nutrition. And again, I had that sense that since I had been out there so many times previously hiking 14ers and not having any issue with elevation, that that was not going to be an issue. 
I also signed up to do the 50 miler, which is in July there and went out there in July to do that. And unfortunately had similar problems that I had with the 100 where I felt really good for the first probably 25 to 28 miles of the race. And then what starts to happen is that any food that I'm taking in doesn't seem to be digesting. And I have an incredibly full belly. And I think because of also the elevation, everything starts to kind of swell. So running becomes really uncomfortable and I can walk run, but I can't maintain a pace that allows those races, the cutoffs. And I was fine for the 50 miler, but for the 100 mile, it obviously became an issue. So you didn't have any symptoms of altitude sickness when you first arrived. Did you arrive early in Colorado to get acclimated to the elevation? They actually say not to do that. If you can't be there for a long period of time, they say to arrive really as close to the event as possible because it takes, I think the maximum amount of time for your body to deteriorate before the event is about three days. So the sooner you do the event, when you get there, the better for your body. I never knew that. Yeah. You either have to spend, I think, like three weeks there or get there and do. So we arrived on Thursday and the race was Saturday. So you felt fine at the start. Yep. So no symptoms. Like you said, in the past, you'd been out there and you'd done 14,000 foot hikes with no issues. Right. One of the benefits of this coaching was to have some nutrition consultation. And they had really talked about the fact that they thought maybe it was needing more electrolytes and fueling for these things is really half the battle, if not three quarters of the battle. You have to eat a lot in order to be able to run that distance. But I think the challenge for almost anyone doing it is trying to figure out what and how to eat to fuel for it. And for me, Ultimately, I think I didn't have the right combination of exactly what to eat to fuel. And for whatever reason, at that level of intensity for the running, it made a difference. So I think for lessons learned, for sure, the fueling piece in order to be successful is that I'm going to have to figure that part out. Do you bring your own fuel or do they have fueling stations along the way? They have a lot of really well-supported aid stations, but you bring fuel with you. And what I was trying to consume was about like 250 calories an hour, which is to me an enormous amount of food while you're trying to run. (laughs) Yeah. You're probably burning more than that though, right? If I look at my Garmin when I run, in fact, I I just was looking at this a few days ago. So as you know, I'm, I'm training for Boston. Yes. I just did a 20 mile run. And so then I looked at my Garmin statistics and it showed that I burned 2,500 calories. Right. And then there was someone else we had run with and her watch said she'd only burned about 1,700 calories. Right. And I know those aren't that accurate. Right. It brings up a good point. I think each person's own nutrition is very individualized. So you may have burned 2,000 calories and she might have burned 1,500 calories and trying to figure out how to fuel. You guys are obviously fueling differently for your individual needs. So by the time this podcast airs, my last podcast was with a nutritionist, Lindsay Cortez, who's Kevin Fowles' daughter. She's a professional dietitian. She's a dietitian for professional athletes. Yeah. And one big takeaway from my conversation with Lindsay was that in general, people tend to underfuel when they're training for these types of events. Right. And particularly women, maybe underfueling could have been an issue for you. Yes, exactly. And I think, unfortunately, without doing more of them, I'm going to have to figure out the balance of the fuel piece for sure. But to where I was leading with the numbers, so you said you were taking in 250 calories an hour. I found that I was burning, you know, my garment 20 miles and a little over 2,000 calories. So for every mile, I was probably burning 100 calories. You know, in your race, let's say you're running six miles an hour, you would need 600 calories by by that metric. Right. But anyway, probably getting too much into the weeds there on the calories. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. I think any kind of ultra distance like that, though, you'll talk to people and basically the discussion is it's almost like an eating contest to get to the finish. And there's some running in there. But I think once people sort of perfect their fueling and their nutrition, I think the running aspect of it is almost the easier part. Yeah. So there were two other Western Mass runners participating, Jason Dominic and Casey Mandrala. Did you know them? Yes. Well, I know Jason from the Snowstorm Classics, and he had let me know that he was training for Leadville as well. And we saw each other at the start, and we were able to kind of hug before he went off. He was, out of the three of us, the only one to finish. Casey made it pretty far and had an injury, I believe. Right. Yeah, I heard that. Now, you were running, you start the race at four in the morning. Yeah. So, of course, it's pitch black. <laughs> yes. So, you're running on mountain trails, avoiding rocks and stumps and trying to follow signs in the dark. Do you wear a headlamp? Yep. You wear a headlamp. And actually, the first probably, I would say, 15 miles of that race is pretty nice running. It goes around a lake and it's kind of single track trail. It was a little bit of a challenge with how many people were running because we were stuck in a line of people that were doing a lot of walking and you couldn't really get by them. Ultimately, I don't think that that impacted my race because I slowed down pretty significantly after that. But also it being my first time, I was kind of like, Ooh, maybe they know something. I don't know. <laughs> walking here and not running. <laughs> so the 680 entries in that race. And does everyone start at once? Yes. Is it crowded at the starting area? You're running with people pretty much the whole time until I would say about mile 24, 25, and then it thins out. I think the faster runners obviously are way, way ahead of the pack of people, but I wouldn't say it felt crowded. So for people who don't know the checkpoints along the way in Leadville, about, I'll say roughly every 10 miles or so. And so you need to reach each checkpoint within a certain time where they pull you off the course. And an additional challenge this year was that they shortened the checkpoint times by 30 minutes. Yes. So then in your case, you passed the first three checkpoints. Your third checkpoint was 29.3 miles. At that time, you had a margin of about 20 minutes. How were you feeling at that point? So the first part of the race actually felt really good. Part of that obviously is adrenaline and excitement, but I definitely started the race feeling very confident that I was feeling good and that this was a good possibility that my legs and everything were going to feel good. Interestingly too, like my breathing and all of that felt good. And I felt pretty good until the first time that I saw my crew, which was Chris and his brother, Matt. And I believe that might've been around mile 23. And I knew I was way behind our projected time for when I needed to be at places. And I think that sort of messed a little bit with my head because I knew I was already behind. And I started at that point to feel like when I was fueling, I really had no appetite, like food was sitting in my stomach. So I really wasn't able to take in any more food or fluid to keep me going. But I figured as all the advice that you get when you run an ultra is that you run the mile that you're in. Don't worry about the miles ahead. Don't worry about what's happened in the past. So I was run walking, kind of hoping that the stomach feeling would subside and that I would be able to get moving a bit. The section I was in was beautiful. It was like an Aspen Grove and all these beautiful trails. And I was just trying to occupy my mind to think more positively about how I was feeling. And I was moving so slowly and knew, honestly, that I was not going to be making the cutoff at the next aid station. So the next aid station was at Twin Lakes, which was yeah. at mile 37.9. Yeah. So you kind of knew as you approached it that you hadn't made it. Correct. Yeah, you must have been heartbroken at that point. Yeah, Chris had actually walked up, I'd say maybe a quarter mile of the trail to meet me to come down with me. And the minute I saw him, I was, I don't want to say sobbing, but I was a mess. Well, understandable. And I was like, I didn't make it. Let's say hypothetically, if they didn't have these time limits, do you feel you could have still went on and did 100 miles? 
what was particularly sad after the race, so the following days, is my legs were really strong. So like when we were hiking, even the next day, it kind of felt even more sad in the sense that I was like, my legs are ready and my body was ready. I just didn't make the cutoff. But they say, honestly, that if you don't make those cutoffs at those certain times, you really aren't going to be able to finish the race. So there's some reasoning and science behind those actual cutoffs. They did make them shorter this year, and they also made it so at the turnaround point where you usually can get a pacer, you're not getting a pacer. So there's so many factors I don't know if I could have continued. And I also sometimes worry that I might push myself to do something I really shouldn't be doing because of my stubbornness or to complete the goal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, runners tend to be that way. Yes. And, you know, you come down and they make you cross the mat. And (laughs) I (laughs) laugh about it, but the woman who was in charge of cutting you or getting you off the course, she comes to embrace you and I'm sort of embracing her and sobbing. And in the meantime, she's like cutting my bib off and cutting my... (laughs) my wristband off and I'm like, Oh, (laughs) and the other part is that particular aid station is incredibly festive. There are hundreds of people gathered there to support their runners. It's where runners also pick up their pacer when they're headed inbound. Was the rest of your crew there? Jill Murphy and her husband, Tim, and also Chris and his brother were there. It was amazing to have them there because boy, did I need people I loved around me. Mm. That was good. The funny thing is, as I'm all depressed about having had to stop my race, the winner of the race is coming back the other direction, coming through that <laughs> checkpoint inbound and looking like fresh as a date hasn't even yeah. done anything all day. And I'm like, oh. Don't you hate that? These races that have turnarounds. And yes. that, <laughs> that, that happens to me on a 10K race. I'm still going out and the guy's coming back. (laughs) Right. But it's impressive. You look at those folks and they are really the pinnacle of ultra running. So your accomplishment was pretty impressive, even though it probably didn't feel that way at the time. I mean, you still ran 38 miles through the mountains with some elevation climb. I mean, has it sunk in yet that, well, it was an accomplishment. You should feel good about it. Yeah. For me, it doesn't feel like an accomplishment. For me, it feels like fuel to make sure that I get one of these done. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like fuel to really figure out how to be successful. So maybe there's another 100 mile ultra trail race in your future. Yes, now it has to be. (laughs) So do you have your eye on one? I'm kind of batting around some ideas, but certainly a sea level one. I think for my first 100, definitely do it where I've been training. They have so many now that there are some that are loops that you can kind of do like Seth's badass where it's loops back to the same spot. The Vermont 100, that's another really well-known 100 miler and that's hard to get into. So yeah, I would like to definitely sign up for one next year and see how it goes. (laughs) Wow, that's impressive. So I'd like to transition now to marathons. I want to go back. In 2004, you ran your first marathon. Which one was it? I ran Hartford. And I think at the time, my dad was also running the race. Or I can't remember if he was able to be there to help cheer me on. But I remember that he's been really my main support with the running. But I picked Hartford so it would be close to home and not have the other variables of a marathon that's away. Yeah, Hartford was my first, too. In fact, I've talked to oh, cool. quite a few runners, and quite often Hartford is the first marathon. Yeah. It's a big event. It's close by. Yeah. It's well it's run. It's a great event. Yeah. The year I ran it, 2014, it rained the entire time. 2014 was your first marathon? Yes. Awesome. I had been a runner, you know, I'd run 5K, 10K races throughout my life, but until 2014, I had never run anything more than a 10K. Wow. And I did a half marathon that spring. I did Boston's Run to Remember and Memorial Day weekend. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. And then I did Hartford in October that year. So that was 2004 for you. And then you ran your first Boston in 2009. Yep. 
I qualified, I believe, in Hartford in 2008. And okay. back in the day, back in that day, you only needed to run a qualifying time to get into Boston. You need to have this cushion. But Hartford in 2008 qualified me for Boston. So then later that year, you ran the Philadelphia Marathon. And that's Saturday before Thanksgiving. Yes. Could you talk about what happened during that race? Yes. So just so everyone knows as well, this was my sixth marathon. And I went down with most of my family. We thought it was going to be a great event for the family to all be at. And a lot of the story is what I'm being told because I don't remember this, but around mile 23 or 22 of the marathon, it has this, you run. I, I ran Philly, yes, in 2019. It has this out and back section, which we love. <laughs> <laughs> so I was headed towards the finish and at around mile 22 and the other runners are running the other direction. But apparently I went forward and fell and an emergency room nurse was running the other direction and saw me fall and immediately understood that what was happening for me was I was having a cardiac event. And fortunately for me, as many things in my life seem to be lining up this way, I collapsed in front of paramedic medical station on the course. And the emergency room nurse was able to alert the paramedics that were working the race there that I was in cardiac arrest. And they came with a defibrillator and were able to get me, I guess, back to regular rhythm and sent me in an ambulance to the hospital. So to add to the drama of the story, my family and everyone is waiting at the finish line for me. And normally a marathon might take me three hours and 45 minutes. So four hours goes by, four hours, 15 minutes, four hours and a half. And they're all like, this doesn't seem right. Something must be wrong. So they're, oh, she got kidnapped or. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't have the technology to track it. Like today you could track runners more easily. Exactly. And my mother still would like to kill me to this day on the back my bib, I put my own phone number as the emergency contact. Oh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was sent to Hanneman Hospital. And finally, somebody let my family know that that's where they should check with the medics on the course to see if anything had happened. And sure enough, when they checked with the medical tent, they told them that I indeed was rushed to Hanneman Hospital. And the emergency room and the cardiologist was called and apparently they did a cardiac catheter on me. They also had me in a hypothermic coma because they weren't certain how long I had been without oxygen. So that was a treatment they were using to prevent any sort of tissue or brain damage for folks that they don't really know how long that they've been deprived of oxygen. So I'm sure a lot of drama associates all of that situation. But to me, what I remember is I was lying in bed and woke up to my younger brother standing over me. And he said, Ari, you had an accident. And I had stitches in my forehead. I felt I could feel that. And I said, I fell and hit my head. And he said, no, it's your heart. And I couldn't wrap my head around anything having to do with my heart because I was a marathoner and couldn't understand what he was trying to tell me. So my parents will also say that it took me a little to come to to understand all this. <laughs> <laughs> what they discovered is that I had from birth a congenital heart defect with one of my arteries where it sort of wrapped around my heart and actually went in to the wrong side. And for whatever reason, they're not sure, but thank goodness and thank God for where it happened and when it happened, they were able to determine that that's what it was. But I was also the 
how quickly the medical team and everyone responded to me is likely why I'm sitting here today, even talking to you. It's amazing. So that happened at mile 23 or so. Do you remember the race prior? So you have no recollection of the entire day then? No, I don't remember anything from the day. Fortunately, that's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, you know, the night before and, you know, we all had dinner in a restaurant thinking how wonderful it was to have my family all around me. I think There's a picture of me in the lobby with my dad and I think some other of my family members that were running maybe the half marathon. And I think I remember that, but I think maybe it's more related to seeing the picture. So no, I don't really have any recollection of that day. Eli was telling me, my younger brother, that that had happened to me. A doctor that was working in the hospital at the time had approached the bed And I remember I was sitting in the bed and the doctor was telling me, so you've been in a medically induced coma for several days and running a marathon. And I just remember thinking, wow, this doctor is so handsome. And then all (laughs) I haven't showered since I was in the marathon and I've been in the hospital for three days. I was mortified. So finally, I think my brain was actually understanding what had happened. (laughs) You were in your late 30s when that happened, and you had no symptoms prior to that. No. So this just came out of left field. Exactly. And again, I think about all those times when I was on training runs or I was running alone and had that had happened. So the outcome would definitely not have been obviously good outcome. So I'm very thankful it happened where it happened and when it happened. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, we all are. We all are. Trust me. So the timeline that happened in November, and then you were in a coma for six days. So you you missed your Thanksgiving dinner. I missed Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently the mayor sent everybody Thanksgiving dinner, which I didn't get to eat. (laughs) In January, you had open heart surgery then to correct the congenital defect in your heart. And so then it took months to recover, right? You didn't start walking until March. And so how long before you decided you're going to go back and go for a run? Were you thinking about running at all during your recuperation? So for anyone who's a runner, it's hard to imagine any situation where you wouldn't be able to run. I know people have been injured and that sidelines them, but I had never been in a situation where I couldn't run. So after the surgery, I had a pretty conservative cardiologist who really was not super supportive of me doing any kind of running. And the surgery really corrected the problem. And the surgeon was very supportive of running. And my dad is a physician. So fortunately, I had his help in some of this and navigating and trying to find where the balance was in terms of what is the risk and what was the purpose of the surgery if I can't do something that I love. So down the road, my dad got the name of another pediatric cardiologist up at Dartmouth. And I was able to go there and they did another cardiac cath and a stress test to determine how successful the surgery was and would it allow me to be able to stress my heart and run. And sure enough, um, the doctor was like, the heart is in very good shape and we're all for you running. So that whole process took some time. And then I think the other piece of it is the mental aspect of really trusting your body again when something like that happens, because you take it for granted just being able to go out for a run and not worrying about, is my heart okay? Is everything okay? So it took a lot to build the confidence to be able to run again, just in the sense that I wanted to make sure I wasn't doing anything dangerous to my body. So then this happened in 2009. And so it took a while before you started running again. Yeah. And, and then about seven years later, you were cleared to run a marathon. I guess you had decided at that point, things were progressing well enough. Well, I, I want to try it again. Yes. What happened too with that is for sure, I was nervous about doing that distance again. But my friend Allison was running with Jill Murphy's group at the time. And 
she's like, you should join this group. So that ability to run with people and to feel comfortable running with a group that if anything ever did happen to me, that there would be people around that could help. And then the camaraderie of that group, some of the folks in that group were running their first marathon and it was kind of like me running my first marathon again. So it really was Jill's group. We talking about the Vermont City group? The Vermont City group. Yep. Got me to feel comfortable, A, with running long distance again, and also feeling confident enough that I could do this with this group. So it was successful. Obviously, you ran the Vermont City Marathon in 2017. Yes, that was an awesome race. I felt really good the whole time running it. And my family was there. And of course, the other balance of all this is trying to convince my family that I'm doing things that are okay and safe for me. And also trying to recognize that it's probably really stressful for them every time I do a race. Sure. So balancing all that, the result was, I think my family could see how much joy and how much, you know, I just love running. So I think that after that race, I think they've been put a little bit more at ease. So then after that race, you decided to go back to Philly where you had the heart attack in 2009. I guess you just wanted to complete that race that you never finished. And again, so not my idea. (laughs) Jill's running group at the time, I think they really thought it would be an awesome, exactly, way to finish this out for me to go back there and to finish this race. So the group was training for that race. And I thought, what better way to go back there, but with the support of this group and Jill and her team and do it in a way that it felt safe. And it also felt different than the last time. Well, that's when I got to know you a bit, just training with that group. I did a few drop-in runs with the group. So I got to know you and Allison. And I remember that. But anyway, there was one time I was running with a group and you weren't there. And Allison was leading the charge and they were planning how they were going to celebrate your accomplishment. And I believe they all had shirts made and yeah, there was a lot of planning that went into it. So it must've felt really special when you crossed that finish line in Philly and all your friends were there to celebrate with you. Yeah. And the other thing that was unbelievably touching and amazing is that the paramedics that all were at the race in 2009 were there. And I'm still friends with the emergency room nurse that saved me. And Dr. Casper, who was the cardiologist at Panaman Hospital, came also. So we had a big celebration at the hotel afterwards and with all my friends from the running group and all the folks that helped me in Philadelphia that first time. So it really was a really special day that it came together beautifully. And then you had a great race too. You ran your PR at 3.38. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. I've never come close to that. So you must feel good after everything you went through and then you were running faster than you had ever run. Yeah, it definitely was a nice way to have that race go. It was funny because at the beginning of that race, I was waiting in a porta potty line and this really young woman in front of me turned to me and she said, oh, I'm so nervous about this race. She's like, have you ever run this race before? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> really good things about it. I think you'll have a great race. <laughs> oh, I was like, I am funny. not going to tell this girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. So, yeah. so did you have a cheesesteak sub after? Oh, yes. So I ran Philly a few years ago. And the first thing I had to do was go get a cheesesteak because I didn't want to eat it before the race. It's kind no, of a greasy. No. <laughs> well, the other thing we loved too was the Reading Terminal Market. Did you get Yes, it? yes. That's where we went. Our hotel was right next to it. <laughs> oh, Tim, that place, yes. The food and the smells, that place is heaven. Yeah, that's great. After Philly, then you ran Boston again in 2018. And that year, the weather was miserable, right? That was a year Des Linden won, the women's yeah. race. And it was temperatures were in the 30s and 40s and wind gusts at 35 miles an hour and nearly two inches of rain. Yes. But you had an excellent time. You were 350. How did that day feel running through the wind and rain and cold? Well, I remember waking up and we actually had about two inches of snow in Belchertown or a slush. I don't know what it was. But I looked at Chris and I said, are they going to cancel this thing? (laughs) 
I'm like, no, they never cancel it. It's one of those things where you almost think it can't get worse when you're running. And then it does. <laughs> <laughs> it was a brutal day. I think anyone that ran that day felt tougher than nails when they finished that course. It was cold. It was windy. And it was like driving rain, like buckets of rain. Again, it's an accomplishment. I feel like just added to the craziness that I have about being tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're definitely tough. No question about that. In fact, that day I was at work and I remember looking out the window and I had run the three previous Boston marathons, but that year I didn't qualify. And then I was thinking, you know, I'm glad I didn't qualify. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it was a brutal day. It's funny. I've never had a good race in Boston. The first time I ran it, I ran it really just to run it, to have fun. And it hurt. I remember hurting a lot at the end of it, but that one, and then I ran in 2019. I just don't really have a good race whenever I run there. I don't know why. I think the bad weather one was your fastest, ironically. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was. So that's quite an accomplishment. So let's just move to a few other things. You mentioned Chris. I believe he's an avid cyclist. Yes. So do you cycle as well? No, I tool around a little bit. I have a cross bike. I use it on the bike path and nice gravel roads. It's very good for us, I think, to have those separate interests. Not much of a runner anymore, although he's a very good runner. And I am definitely not a cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> And then I saw on your Sugarloaf Sun profile, a few years ago, you drove an RV to support two friends who did a mountain bike race in South Africa. Yes. So Mary and Doug Gurton, who definitely, they are wonderful mentors, coaches, friends. They asked me several years ago if I would be interested in doing this for them. It's a stage race. So each stage you start and end in a different place so they needed a support person to drive the rv from one staging area to the next town while they ride their bikes there it was an amazing experience i have never been in a situation where i was really taking risks and they were safe risks but they were risks i was really exploring on my own while they were off cycling but there was a woman from South Africa there supporting another team that I was able to connect with. And during the day, we would do some running in the places that we were, or she would take me to the wineries. It was an amazing experience and watching for them a grueling, grueling event, probably 40 miles a day over mountainous terrain and mountain biking. And, and I would just kind of set up for them. So when they were done, the camper was all set and ready for them. Must have taken a couple of days just to get there. So that's a long flight. Oh yeah. The flying there was, it was an adventure for sure. So how long were you there for? I was there for probably about a week and a half. I will fault my bad Boston time for coming back from, that was in March. So then I was training for Boston all that time. But when I got back and ran Boston, I'd like to say I was like totally jet lagged or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so one last thing I'd like to mention is that you were very generous about donating to charitable causes. You do the 12 days of giving at Christmas time every year. Yes. Which you donate to a different charity. I think every day for the 12 days leading up to Christmas. And you inspire others to do that as well. So uh, we're very lucky to have you in our, in our Western Mass running community. Thank you. I feel blessed to be part of it. So Erica, as always, it's been a pleasure talking with you. So thanks so much for sharing your experiences on the podcast. I hope to see you at some Western Mass running event sometime soon. Yeah, I miss seeing you too, Tim. It's been great to be on and talking to you. Yeah, maybe the Snowstorm Classics or maybe some other race before then. Yes, I hope so. Oh, well, Boston. Are you going to be in Boston? Are you doing Boston? I'm doing Boston. Oh, I didn't even know that. How, how did I not know that? I, well. <laughs> That's awesome. I have no speed in my legs, but. There's no bus this year. I know. Are you staying overnight in the city or are you just going up for the day? No, we're going to stay Sunday night there. Is that what you're planning on doing? Yeah, we're staying Sunday and Monday night. So I have a cousin who lives in California. She's also running. Oh, cool. So she's running. And then I we have 
family from out of town coming to watch. I have a brother who lives in Oklahoma. He's never been the one. So oh, he's awesome. coming. I have Do two you have nieces. a cheering section? Yeah, I'll have a cheering section. Well, Cindy always comes and my sister lives up near Boston. So they're always there. And Cindy and my sister, Margaret, they have a knack for muscling their way into the front of the crowd on Boylston Street. Oh, I love it. When I make that left turn from Hereford to Boylston Street, oh. I look to the right and it's always there. Oh, that's awesome, Tim. I don't know how they do it. That's so good. Love that. But I'm, I'm nervous. I don't know how it's going to be this year with COVID. I don't know what they're going to allow spectators to do. It's interesting. Most of the races, we've all been worried about that and thinking how different the experience is going to be. And ultimately, I feel like every race I've done, it feels good and spectators have been able to be there and it feels, to the most part, more normal. So hopefully it'll be normal and hopefully the weather will be nice and cool. That's a good chance of that then. I'm hoping for temperatures in the 40s would be nice. 40s or 50s. No, that sounds good. I'll second that. Well, good luck with your Boston. Maybe I'll see you there. Yes, I hope to see you there, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Happy running. You too. Here's a rundown of running events. Last week, it was announced that the Marine Corps Marathon, an annual event held in Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia, will be virtual for the second straight year due to COVID. The in-person race has been canceled. Hopefully, this isn't the start of a trend. And speaking of big city marathons, there are three big ones coming up on Columbus Day weekend. On Saturday, October 9th, the Hartford Marathon, Half Marathon, Half Marathon Relay, and 5K events take place. The Hartford Marathon is a popular event for first-time marathoners from Western Mass. The Chicago Marathon takes place on Sunday, October 10th. My guest for next week's podcast is Ashley Mellon from Agawam, who ran the Chicago Marathon in 2019 and will be running it again on the 10th. You won't want to miss my conversation with Ashley. In on Monday, October 11th, the 125th running of the Boston Marathon takes place. As you heard earlier in the podcast, Erica Emerson and I are both running in this event, along with other runners from Western Mass. I know it's crazy to look at the 14-day weather forecast, but it calls for temperatures in the mid-60s. I'm hoping for a bit cooler. Here's the race calendar for Hampshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Berkshire counties for the next two weeks. Check out the race websites for more details. This Thursday evening, September 30th, is the last night of the Empire One 5K races at Ashley Reservoir. The race starts at 6 p.m., followed by pizza at the Elks. Starting in October, folks still informally gather at Ashley on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. for a more leisurely run around the reservoir. Bring your headlamp. The Donut Dash to benefit the West Springfield Rotary Club takes place during the entire month of October. This is a virtual event only. You can run, ride, hike, or walk. It's free to sign up. Donations are welcomed. On Saturday, October 2nd, the inaugural Run Billy Run 5K Run and One Mile Walk will take place at Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke. This event is hosted by 4Run3 and will benefit the William J. Boyle Scholarship Fund, which is awarded to a student from Putnam Vocational Technical Academy who will be attending STIC. Sunday, October 3rd, the day that coincides with Tom Brady's return to Foxborough, is a busy day for races. The game doesn't start until 8.20 p.m., so you have plenty of time to get a run in before settling down to watch the game that evening. Impact Racing hosts a Ford Hill Brewery half marathon and 5K on October 3rd in East Hampton. Also on October 3rd, the Gunnery Sergeant Thomas J. Sullivan Remembrance Run, a 5K run and two-mile walk at Nathan Bills in Springfield, takes place. The inaugural Steel Rail Marathon takes place on October 3rd, along with the Half Marathon and 8K events. The Marathon and Half Marathon will start in Lanesboro at what's left of the Berkshire Mall, while the 8K starts in Cheshire. All events end in Adams. Another race on October 3rd is the Covered Bridge Classic 10K in Conway, Mass. This event also features a 1.7-mile kids race. And yet, 
Another race on October 3rd is the fifth annual Cutchin Superhero Run, a 10K run and 5K walk or run event that will take place in Northampton. On Saturday, October 9th, the third annual Power of Horses 5K cross-country run and walk takes place at Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke. Also on October 9th, the Roots Teen Center in North Adams hosts a 5K run and walk. The five-week Healthy Kids Running Series continues every Sunday in Southwick. Weeks four and five will take place on October 3rd and 10th, respectively. There are three other Western Mass events on Sunday, October 10th. Four Run 3 is partnering with MHA, the Mental Health Association, to host the Four Run 3 Grit Running Festival for Mental Health Awareness at the Four Run 3 store in East Longmeadow on October 10th. Run your preferred distance on a supported course, either a 5K-ish course, half marathon, or full marathon. Check out the Four Run 3 website for more details. The Berkshire Running Center hosts the Run for the Hills 5K and 10K in Great Barrington on October 10th. The Monroe-Dunbar Brook Trail Races take place on October 10th in Monroe. Distances include 10.5 miles and 3.5 miles. Thank you for listening to the Let's Run Western Mass Running Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And as always, happy running. Happy running.